what I wanted to really talk about was just uh, seeing the, uh, our young people there, uh, our young adults, playing games with the kids and, and uh, running activities. And they had face painting going on and they had little crafts and they made little Easter baskets and they did a little Easter egg hunt and all these things. And I thought, you know, here's a bunch of young people who probably could have a lot, a lot of other options on a beautiful sun, uh, sunny uh, Saturday to go do different things. And I, I just was reflecting on what, what makes people do that? sacrifice that kind of time to come and maybe minister to these, these kids when they could have so many other things that they could be doing. And it made me think of this. It made me think of the early church because Christians are to, supposed to look different, aren't we, than the rest of the world. Lots of people might go and volunteer time for good, uh, for good things. But for Christians, for believers, it's rooted in something, something else. And I wanted you to turn to Acts chapter 4 because I wanted you to see the early church, how the early church lived when, when it was first founded. In Acts chapter 4, I just want to draw your attention to a couple of verses, verses 32 and 33. It says this, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Those verses sum up the, the early church for us right there. The apostles' job, the, the leaders of the church, the apostles were witnessing to the resurrection. They were telling everybody about the resurrection. That word witnessing means testifying to it, giving testimony of it, giving evidence to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. But I want to zero in on that phrase, and great grace was upon them all. The grace referred to here would not be saving grace. That already happened. The Lord had already added to their number. This would be favor. God was granting favor to his church. And we're also told that that people outside the church were showing favor to the church. Why, Why was that? Well, the reason is because of their response to the gospel. You saw there in verse 32 that they didn't consider their possessions their their own. They had all things in common. In fact, look at verses 34 and 35. It goes on to say, Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need." You see, great, great love and care was being exhibited by the church in tremendous ways. They didn't even count their own possessions their own. And, you know, that began immediately at the very start of the church. You go back to chapter 2 of Acts. That's where the church actually began. It's the day of Pentecost. All the apostles are in Jerusalem. Jesus has already risen from the dead. He's ascended to the Father, and he told his apostles to go wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit that they would be indwelt from power on high. And when that happened, it happened on the day of Pentecost, Peter could do nothing but begin to preach the word. And he began to preach right there on the day of Pentecost to the crowd that was with him. And I just want to draw your attention to the end of his sermon in verse 29 of Acts chapter 2. He said this, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet... And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, 
He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. He tells them about King David. They knew about David. He says that David prophesied about the coming Christ. Christ means Messiah. That the Messiah would come and God would raise them from the dead. And then Peter says, that's Jesus. Jesus, God raised him up. And we're all witnesses of that. And the response of the people was immediate. They wanted to know, well, how do I respond to that news? Someone rose from the dead. What do we do in response to it? Look at verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what should we do? And then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we're told the response was great. In verse 41, it says 3,000 souls were added to their number that day. But I want you to see how the early church is described right there in verses 42 on. Verse 42 says, They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done to the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God, and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. You see it there. They were having favor with all of the people. And that was in response to the love and the care that the church was demonstrating, a very very extreme example of love. They sold their possessions. They divided them among themselves. They didn't want anybody to be in their their church that was, was lacking. That early church had a response to the message of the resurrection that changed the way they lived. The resurrection should change the way we live. It's a resurrected life. The cross of, and Christ's death symbolizes our death to sin. That is true. We looked at that on Friday. But the resurrection, the Christ coming to new life, symbolizes our new life in Christ. And the church lived that new life. It's called the resurrected life. That's what I titled the sermon today, the resurrected life. And, 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 and I want to show us today how that resurrected life uh, should should make us look different. In what ways? We're going to get just a couple of aspects of that. But before we do, just really quickly, I, I want us to understand one thing before I launch into this, that that new life that we have does not operate by our own power. Everything we're going, about, going to be talking about here doesn't come by your own strength, your own willpower. Look at 2 Corinthians 13.4. I just want you to see this verse. It says this, For though he was crucified in weakness... Yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, and we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Christ was crucified in weakness. He was was a man. He was in the flesh. But he lives, he was resurrected by the power of God. That was not a natural event, a supernatural event. It took supernatural power, the power of God. So too do we live with that supernatural power, a resurrection power. So three things I want us to see today as we go through various passages, three aspects of a resurrected life. We're going to look uh, at the fact that we should have a reign over sin. Sin no longer has dominion over us. We sang about that, that we should have a renewed mind and a replaced hope. So just number one, 
I want to look at how we can have a reign over sin in our lives. And I want to take you to Romans, Romans chapter 6. If you want to turn there, you're in Acts, just go to the right hand, and Romans is the very next book. We were in Romans chapter 3 on Good Friday, and so I thought it'd be great to stay in the book of Romans for this. But in Romans chapter 6, Paul is talking about this idea of being united with Christ in his death. That just as he died, we died. And I want you to see it in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. It says this, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. So there it is. By faith we have been united with Christ. And that happened from the moment our, conver- our conversion took place. What has happened to Christ has happened to us. We're united with him. It's uh, like you guys that watch sports, right? I watch sports. Uh, when your team wins, what do you say? We won. Well, you weren't out there carrying the ball around or kicking it, but you identify with the team, don't you? You use we the same way here. We r- died with Christ. We identify with him. In fact, Paul says that it's baptism into death. That is not a reference to water baptism, although when we do water baptism, it certainly symbolizes that spiritual death. But Paul is using it in a metaphorical sense. Baptism into death means we've been spiritually immersed into Christ. We now identify with him in his death. And since we've been united with him in his death, his death becomes ours. But look at the other side. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, it says, and he now lives, we should live a new life too. We should, it says, walk in newness of life. That's the new life that we should now live. Look what it says in verse 5. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. So there it is again, that word united. We've been united together in the likeness of his death, So certainly we'll be united in the likeness of his resurrection. But I want you to see the words that that, that Paul uses here in verse 6 onward. He kind of lays this out clearly for us by speaking of our death as the old man. Did you see it there in verse 6? Knowing that our old man was uh, crucified. Well, our old man doesn't mean the bad part of us. Uh, Some people think that. Uh, The the, the bad part of, of Kevin was crucified, but the good part, you know, that continues on. That's not what it means at all. Uh, We learned that in Romans chapter 3. There is no good part. We don't have a good part. The old man is the all of us, the all part of man. For he who has died has been freed from sin, it says. So the whole person has to die because there is no good part. The old man goes, and he compares the old man with the new man, and he does it in Ephesians chapter 4. You don't have to turn there. I'll just put the verses on the screen for you but he keeps this theme of this old man. It says this, but you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust. So so notice the put off language that Paul uh, uses there. 
What does it mean to, to put off the old man? Well, as, as if, if, you were, if you were, you know, maybe homeless or if you were maybe, uh, I don't know, on a backpacking trip for months and you came back and your clothes were all ragged and torn and, and filthy and full of holes, you needed a bath, you took those clothes off, you cleaned yourself up, you got all nice and clean, and then you wouldn't put those same ratty clothes right back on. The old man is the outer exterior part. You are recreated from the inside out, but don't go put on the outer old stuff. He says, put that off. Put off the old man. It refers to repentance and submission. We must repent from our sin and turn away from our our life of sin, turn to Christ in submission to him. In fact, Paul describes that that whole thing in Colossians chapter 3. Look at the verses here. In Colossians 3, verses 5 to 9, it says this, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth. And he kind of lists some things, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you've put off the old man with his deeds. There's the the language of the putting on and the putting off. Our old self has been crucified. There's no need to put on the old filthy rags, the outer garments, those works of the old self. Those have gone away. Take a look at Galatians 5.24. Those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, we're going to see in a bit how our passions and desires are also crucified because it goes a little bit further, but the idea is that that, that there's been death to the old life. That has come to the old life, and in its place is a new life. Going back to our passage in Romans, just look at verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. Do you see it there? Because Christ has been raised, we shall also live. That's the new life. So he dies no more, we die no more. Sin no longer has dominion over him, no longer has dominion over you or me. You say, how so? Because how are we, are we still going to die? Don't we still die? Yes, we, we do die, absolutely. But verse 10 explains it specifically. Look at verse 10. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. See, Jesus' death was a death to sin. Our death was a death to sin. So that's specific. It's in two senses that we died. I want to make sure you understand this. Two senses. It's regarding sin's penalty and sin's power. Sin's penalty is that Christ met the legal requirement for sin, the legal demands for sin. It's the verse we we looked at this morning, Romans 6, 23. But the wages or penalty or price of sin is death. So, So he died to that penalty to satisfy that demand. So being united with Christ, we have died to that penalty. That's been paid. So we're dead to sin in the penalty, but also in the power of sin. Sin no longer reigns over us. It no longer has dominion over us. We have freedom from that. Look at verse 11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have died to the power of sin. It no longer reigns over us. 
We count ourselves as being truly alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, here's where it applies to the church. We should look different. We should look different. The world is in the power of sin. Make no mistake. All you got to do is look. The world is dominated by sin. The church should not be dominated by sin. It doesn't mean we're free of sin. Please don't get me wrong. We're still in the flesh. We still fall, but we are not dominated by it. It does not reign over us. Our lives now should yield fruit, the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of the Spirit. That should be evident in our lives. Even Jesus said that you would know a true Christian, you would know a true believer by their fruit. Those things must come out because we have a new life. And that can only come by the putting off. The putting off of the old man. Yes, he's been crucified with Christ, but there's a part of the putting off. We don't take those outer garments and put them on again. Those have to be gone. Burn those filthy things. Now, let's go back to our Ephesians 4 passage, which ended with this. I want you to see it again. Verse 22, I'll put it on the screen. It says this, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man. So we looked at that. But now look at the very next two verses, verses 23 and 24. And there's more. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. We, we've put it off the old man, but, but now we've got to replace that. Something has to come back on. There has to be a replacement, and Paul says it's the new man. It's the new man that's been created according to God in true righteousness and holiness, which is a drastically different description that we had um, in, Romans, uh, in our Romans passage about the old man. He called that the body of sin. But here's the new man. It's created in, in righteousness Listen, that means we have a a righteous standing before God. Holiness, he looks upon us as holy. That's why we're called saints. He looks upon us in that way. And with the coming of that new standing before God and the new man comes a renewed mind. Did you see it there? It says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. When we put on the new man, it comes with a renewing of our mind. That that comes as a part of the package. In fact, the, the Colossians passage that we looked at earlier says a very similar thing. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. You put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So the new man is renewed in knowledge. That's the second aspect of the resurrected life. We should have a renewed mind. You have reign over sin. We no longer put the outer things on, but now there has to be something as well happening up top, a renewed mind. Now, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. He explains what's taking place here. He says, the natural man, this means the, the man without regeneration, the old man, could you say it that way, okay? The old man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. Why? They're foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned, it says. The old man has no way to discern spiritual things. He's the old man. He's a natural Man, we need a spiritual discernment, and it's given to us by God. It comes with the new man. It comes with a renewed mind. In fact, two verses earlier than this, 1 Corinthians 2, 12, he says this. Now, we have received, speaking of believers, we received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Why? That we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. You get the spirit of God, which gives us a new mind. We now can understand spiritual things. Now, why is this important? Listen, the mind, that's the center of our thought, center of our understanding. It informs our beliefs and our values. Now, values, I talk about this when we do the parenting thing, right? The values a lot. 
the values, values are very tricky things. We all have values. What are they? What are values? Well, values are principles or they're, they're standards of behavior or uh, a judgment, one's own judgment of what is important in life. And many of us don't even know where we got our values from. Maybe it was our upbringing. Maybe we got it from our parents, maybe from education or something. But we have these these values, and they're so important because they guide our desires. They allow us to set goals in our lives. That sets priorities, and that affects everyday decisions. Your values are huge. We need values to change. Values must be changed. And our human values are confined by time, space, culture. So they're not easily changed. It's very hard to change somebody's values. You go into their, their culture and you try to tell them, well, listen, that's not really important. It's very hard to do that, isn't it? They've just grown up saying, well, this is important. It's very hard to change someone's value. So to have a value change, you need something bigger than yourself, something that transcends time, space, and culture. Remember the verse we looked back at Galatians 5, 24? I'll put, put it up there again just to remind you. Those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. How do you crucify those passions and desires? Only a mind that's been renewed by the Spirit of God can do that. Crucifying our passions and desires, that happens through a renewed mind. I want to show you an example in Scripture. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. If you're in Romans still, just go to 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. So you just keep going to the right and you'll come to it. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, Paul gives us a really great example of a value change and how that value change happened. Now, before I read the passage, I'll just kind of bring you up to speed. Paul has been listing off all of his earthly accomplishments. He's been lifting off, list, listing off everything he values. So you want to take a value list, it's all there in Philippians 3. He's he's sharing it. These are all my accolades. These are the things that I valued. These are the things I pursued. These were my passions and my desires. Now look at verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Whoa, wait, hold on. You guys, that that is huge. That's a huge verse. He just listed off everything that he's been passionate about all his life. He says, but I count all these, those things as loss. Those things I thought were gain, now they're loss. Suddenly he values them no longer. Wow. Well, how, how did that happen? Well, there's a key word in here. The word is count. It comes three times to us in verses 7 and 8. The word is hegeomai, and it means to consider or evaluate or uh, assess. He has uh, considered these things. A renewed mind begins to assess our values. He looks at the things we valued and says, hold on a second, does that match up with what I've discovered in Christ? See, all of our values as believers need to be reordered, reprioritized, restructured. The early church, they were happy to sell their homes, their land, to help out other believers precisely because they had a renewed mind. Those things no longer mattered so much. In Paul's case, it's very interesting. The things that he was living before, his passions and stuff, they're all good things. They're all commendable things when you read about them. He, he, could, he wanted a righteous life. Well, that's a commendable uh, thing. Uh, look at the things that he kind of describes. Uh, but back up in verse 5, he says he was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. He was the, of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. 
concerning the law, a Pharisee, a Pharisee. He was concerned about being obedient to the law. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, he was passionate about defending the religion of his fathers. Commendable things. But then Paul's values changed. They were replaced. And he says, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. So the question has to be, what, what caused that change? That's huge. That just doesn't happen. Paul realized that those things did not make him, first of all, acceptable to God. Part of it was that. He thought those things, those passions made him acceptable to God. And we looked at that a little bit on Friday, didn't we? Like most people, he had enough morality to keep him out of trouble, but not enough righteousness to get him into heaven. Listen, righteousness won't get you into heaven, not your own, because you have none. That's what we looked at on Friday. And that's what Paul explains in this section. He, he begins to explain what caused the change. Look at verse 8. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost. So even if he didn't list it all there, he says, whatever I didn't mention, I count it all as a loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Notice that he says it was the knowledge of Christ. Once Paul gained the knowledge of Christ, suddenly he had something that transcended himself, something that transcended time and space and culture. He had something that could change his values. He found it in Christ, in knowing him. Guess what he didn't find? Religion. He had one, folks. Isn't it true that people confuse that? I heard someone say that at the Ronald McDonald house yesterday. Oh, you guys are here, but I'm not religious. What they think? What they think? You're here to, to press upon me a religion. Paul did not find a religion. He found a person. He found Christ. It's not about a religion. Look at John 17, 3. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What's eternal life? Knowing Jesus Christ. It's not about a religion. Many of you knew I I worked in the entertainment industry for years. Um, When I couldn't work as an actor, which was often, I worked as a grip, which is on movie sets and behind the scenes. And I worked with a guy named Morgan, and he called himself Mr. 82 because he was 82 inches tall. He was a big guy. And he was a lot of fun to work with. He was just a funny, funny guy. But let me tell you, he was just carnal as could be. You know, he was just lost and carnal as could be. And he was constantly upset, constantly depressed. There was always things happening in his life because that, that, that was his life. That's just all he had. His values were everything was right here. And it just never worked out. And one of those times he was moping and complaining and I just looked at him. And he, he knew I was a Christian. I said, Morgan, you know what you need. And he just went, oh, what? Religion? And it just occurred to me, that's what he had thought the whole time. He had looked at me as a religious person, that all I had was a religion to pass on to him. And I went, oh, no, 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 no. You you sort of got that going on right now, whether you think it, you do or not. You don't need a religion, brother. You need Christ. And guess what? He had never heard that before. We don't need another religion. (laughs) We need Jesus. Only Jesus can change those very hard-to-change values. And Paul, everything he counted a value, he says, I counted as rubbish. That is an interesting word that he used, rubbish. It doesn't mean he's British, by the way. Um, maybe he was. I don't know. But the word is skubalon in the Greek. And if I can use an American word, it can mean garbage, but it can mean waste or excrement, dung. He's using a very harsh word here on purpose. 
These are all things that he pursued, things he valued. He says, now they're just as if they're, they're, they're waste, they're done. You know, when I, I did leave acting, I came into the ministry, and many times I had people come up to me and, and say, oh, you let, don't you ever miss it? But I remember one lady in particular kept pressing the issue. She said, don't you ever miss that, you know, that kind of limelight and the acting? I said, no, I, I, I don't. She goes, come on. Come on, certainly. Certainly you go back and miss that. Certainly you look at that. And I just, I got a little frustrated. I thought, you're a believer. Why should that be so hard for you? In fact, we should all be going, I count that as rubbish. And it shouldn't be hard to believe that we would. But she thought, you would give that up? Are you crazy? I mean, you could be a Christian and all, but I thought, maybe you're missing something here, girl. Listen, I, we, we get a whole new value system, and we shouldn't be surprised when people do that. And they drop everything and say, I just want to pursue Christ. You say, okay, follow me, brother. He just found Christ. It was for the knowledge of him. But also he found where righteousness really comes from. Look at verse 9. Be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, because you can't get it there, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by Faith, that's exactly what we looked at on Friday. God's wrath is being poured out against mankind, against unrighteousness, against ungodliness, because, well, nobody has unrighteous, uh, sorry, nobody has righteousness, they all have unrighteousness, and we need the righteousness. And Paul finally discovered, that's my greatest need. I need righteousness, and I can't get it from the law. And he found it, and when he found it, his values changed, and he lived differently. He says, I can't, all that thing is lost. It doesn't matter anymore. In fact, look at verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Because Paul has been conformed to his death, he's been united to Christ's death, his old man has been crucified with him. Paul now wants to only just know him. You know, this speaks of wanting a deeper intimacy with Christ. That's what that speaks of. I just want a relationship with him above everything else. And that really is where it starts for the believer. You know what? People are passionate about getting it, you know, finding Christ, and they want to jump into ministry and those kind of things. Scripture is wise to say, don't do that. Let them know Christ first. Focus on knowing him, because it has to be about that. It cannot be about what the church offers in its wonderful hospitality, and it's, it's amazing worship, right? The wonderful ministries that are available. Oh, but they have a really good kids program. Where do you find where you really grow in your intimacy with him? Who is encouraging you to do that? That's where you want to be. And obviously, a study of God's word helps us in that because we understand him more when we study his word. So he says, I want that above everything else. But did you notice that he says that it's the power of his resurrection? You see that? It's the, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. The power of his resurrection, that that power is what brought Christ forth from the dead. Paul wants to know that power. That power now operates in believers. That's the the power of the Spirit. It's in us. We have a resurrection power to live a restored life. You can't just create that renewed mind. That happens by the inward. It happens by the Holy Spirit in you. It happens by the power of God. Colossians 3.1 says this, if then you were raised with Christ, so if, if you were raised with him, if you have experienced a resurrected life, seek those things which are above, 
where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. This means we no longer pursue the earthly things. This is the idea. We, we pursue the things above, like the church in Acts that we looked at the beginning. You know, in, in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 12, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but you can. I'm just going to read a little parable there. Jesus is confronted by a man who wants, uh, wants Jesus to really uh, handle a domestic issue for him. And he says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. <laughs> my brother's not sharing his money with me. The money gets to us. But teacher, isn't this what you should be concerned about? Isn't this what, you, you know, you want justice. You want these things, right? And he says, no. He said to him, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. And then he tells a parable. It begins in verse 16. And he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Saul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You know, it's not about having things. You know, we can have things. My wife bought me for my birthday when she was gone (laughs) a very lovely chair to study in, and my chair is beautiful. It has heating. It has massage. It's just missing a soft drink thing. That'd be really great. <laughs> but I don't, I, I sit in that chair and I don't sit there going, I'm carnal, I'm carnal, I'm carnal. I, I can enjoy it. God has given us things, Paul says, all things richly to enjoy. We can enjoy things. This is not to, to preach against having, having things. The key is in that parable, being rich toward God. That's the key. You can have stuff, but are you rich toward God? What have you laid up for him? What are you pursuing that is above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God? You know, you, you may not have a lot. You may have very little. You might not own much at all. But are you rich toward God? That's the key. You know, Jesus said that when he returns, people on earth are going to be like they were in the days of Noah. What did he mean by that? You know, people always get this wrong. I want you to see it. It's in Luke 17. We'll just put it on the screen for you. Luke 17, 26 to 27. He says, And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives. They were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Jesus, he's listing common everyday things. He's not listing a bunch of carnal pursuits. He says, they ate, they drank, they married. That's it. But see, they were preoccupied with the normal earthly pursuits, and then the judgment came. They, those things are okay, but they weren't rich toward God. And we know that, that Noah was building a way of escape from a certain flood coming their way, and he was a preacher of righteousness, but that didn't matter. I'm just going to pursue these things and keep eating and drinking and, and marrying. Jesus goes on in that parable to give the example of Lot, who lived in Sodom. And it says in Luke 17, verse 28, Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. 
But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Uh, Again, Jesus just says people were eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, uh, building. But then judgment came. You see, the value change that comes from a renewed mind should lead us to seek the things that are above. Lead us to want to be rich toward God. We can have earthly things. That's fine. Uh, but, but they shouldn't be more than the pursuit of the things above, to being rich toward God. A renewed mind will change our perspective on that. It also will change on our perspective on suffering. Paul actually mentions that. He wants to know the fellowship of his sufferings. You know, Paul hoped to share in the intimacy of suffering with Christ. Is that, is that anybody's thought here? Do you wake up in the morning and Jesus, I hope I can suffer with you today. <sighs> I doubt any of us pray that, right? But, but Paul did. Suffering is the last thing we want. When we do suffer, we want release from it as quickly as possible. But there is a sweet fellowship that comes, a renewed intimacy that comes when we do suffer as Christ suffered. Jesus said this in Luke 9, 23. He said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Yes, we deny ourselves. We try to seek things that are above, but there's a cross that we take up. We're required to take that up as we follow him because we might come under suffering. In fact, we're told that we will. We should expect it, especially as we grow in our knowledge of Christ, as as we experience his resurrection power. We're going to come under increasing attack. Trials, sufferings, they're sure to be part of our growth because that just brings us closer to Christ. We need that to happen. I love what Peter says about this in 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. See, that's somebody who has thought about the eternal. That's somebody who's thinking about where he's going, seeking those things above. I'm going to partake of his sufferings, but there's going to be a day when his glory is revealed. I'm going to be really, really glad I did. Really glad I did. We must partake of his sufferings, and a renewed mind will help us with that. We saw that in the early life of the apostles, don't you? When you read Acts uh, chapter 5, verses 40 to 41, they began to take on persecution and suffering as Jesus did. And they were beaten. And it says this in verse 40, they agreed with him, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, then let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Listen, we're not all going to suffer for uh, his his name in in, in specifically that way, suffer persecution. But, But any suffering, pain, sorrow, loss, temptation, however suffering comes, Uh, to us. Listen, Jesus experienced every bit of it. As we've been seeing in Hebrews, because he has, he can can sympathize with us. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, he's our great high priest. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Wow. You just look at what the renewed mind brings to this resurrected life. Again, this should make us look different to the world. Do you have that kind of resurrected life? Do you see a reign over sin in your life? 
Do you operate with a renewed mind? Have your values changed? Do you no longer pursue the things of the world with such fervor as you once did? One more aspect of a resurrected life I want to look, and we sang about it today. It's a replaced hope. That replaced hope is described in 1 Peter 1 as a living hope, and I want to take us there. 1 Peter 1, this will be the last section we go to. 1 Peter chapter 1. What do people hope for today? Where are people's uh, hope? Where's that placed? What is the end for most people? Is it just to get as much out of this life as you can? Just pursue as much? Hope you you have a really good time doing it? Was it James Dean credited for saying, live fast, die young, and leave a good-looking corpse? I don't think he actually came up with that phrase, but that certainly was the mentality. But in 1 Peter 1, 3, look what it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We sang about that living hope today. And Peter here says that we've, he's begotten us again. That word means to be born again. You've been reborn, regenerated, recreated, resurrected, you could say it that way, to a living hope. A hope that's different than the hope that most people have today. Have you ever just asked somebody that that question? What's your hope? Probably confuse them, wouldn't it? What do you mean what I hope? (laughs) Yeah, what what are you hoping for out of life? Probably would get them thinking. Hopefully it wouldn't be a hard question for you to answer. What's your hope? Well, I have a living hope. I've been resurrected to this living hope. If you don't have that, then this is your best life now. But the resurrected life shows us that there is indeed something beyond this temporal life, something valuable. Because the hope that we had before, it was a false hope, wasn't it? It was deceptive, it was empty, and ultimately is dead because it leads to death. But this living hope is an eternal hope. We have confident trust in the eternal life that's promised by Christ because it's been secured to us by the resurrection of Christ. Notice what it says. It says that he has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You know, Jesus, being a sympathetic high priest, was sympathetic with those who experienced loss around him. Remember Martha and Mary? They were weeping and, uh, because Lazarus, their brother, had died. And he's trying to comfort Martha, and he says these words to her in John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said, oh, yeah, I believe, I believe that. You know, we're, we're going to be resurrected, you know, at the end. Uh, you know, that'll eventually uh, happen. But Jesus was trying to teach her something deeper. No, I am the resurrection and the life. You can have that life now. You don't know how to wait till then. Folks, we're not just being waiting around to be resurrected. You have a resurrected life now. You live differently now. We should be. It should look different because we have a new living hope. Your assurance in Christ is as certain and as absolute as Christ is alive. It's a living hope. It's not fake. It's not dead. And because your hope is real, so is your future, and your future is described here in verse 4. Look at it. It says, To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, 
reserved in heaven for you. There's your hope. You have an inheritance. There's something laid up for you, and that is laid up for you is imperishable. That means it cannot be destroyed. I don't care where you store up things here. It's not imperishable. It can go. It can be destroyed. Your inheritance there is undefiled. That means it's free from contamination, free from being spoiled, free from outside pollution. And it's also, it does not fade away. That means it doesn't lose its luster. It's not going to fade from within. It's not going to be as if, oh, I thought that was really going to be great, but kind of, kind of lost that. I hope that's not you. Maybe, maybe your life has just taken a turn and you've started to think less of a resurrected life, less of that hope, less about eternity, but we're to make much of it. Listen, it is as secure as it ever was. It is kept in heaven for you. It's reserved for you. It won't be touched. It will be perfect when we come. I've met many believers who live as if they don't have that hope. And I always wonder, why is that? I think they don't understand the resurrected life that they have now in Christ. They just kind of want to get through, let's just get through this life. I just want to be done. But we actually can live victoriously as Christ was victorious over the grave. So, too, we can live that way. I want to close just by reading Ephesians chapter 1 to you because it's just a wonderful description of really all these things that come to us in a resurrected life. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17, says this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. You know the power that we need to have all these things, that we need to have the revelation in the knowledge of him, that we need to have the eyes of our understanding enlightened, to, to know the hope of our calling, to know the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. All, all, all that, that power is the same mighty power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. That means it's accessible to you. To have those things, to be able to look at life that way, to have that kind of under, understanding that you may know what is the hope, that you may know of the riches of the glory. Those things we can know because of a resurrected life. I mentioned at the start that all over the world, Easter, Easter Sunday for many people is nothing more than just a, a holiday. And sadly, maybe even many confessing Christians just treat it as such, a day where we can have a nice meal maybe, <laughs> The resurrection didn't happen to give people a few days off. It didn't happen to give people just a, a weekend together or a nice meal. It happened to demonstrate that Jesus was the Son of God and that he lives today and that the church, the people that he would call to himself, could live victorious that way. We're called to live victorious. We're not defeated. And sadly, a lot of times I think the church thinks they have been. You have not. Jesus won the victory 
And so we can live a resurrected life. And my encouragement to you today is, listen, we celebrate a resurrected king. And as we've identified with him in his death, I told you that that means his death on that cross 2,000 years ago. I identify with that death 2,000 years ago. Kevin was nailed to the cross. So too, when he came out of that grave, I identify with that new life, a resurrected life, which is demonstrated by a life free from the dominion of sin. We can exercise rule and reign over it. It's our master, not the other way around. That we can live with a renewed mind, that we can have an understanding of spiritual things and pursue things that are seated above where Christ is and be rich toward God. And that we would know the, the hope of the living hope, that we're really living for something amazing, something yet to be seen completely. It's an inheritance. It's waiting for you. But because of the resurrected life, we know it's real. We know it exists. Jesus has the victory, and so should his church. Live a resurrected life. It's been given to you. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us today. We thank you for the promise your scripture holds of this new life. When that old man was crucified and the new man was put on, all that came with it, so extremely important, Lord, for us to grasp these truths. And Lord, I know that we need your spirit to help us with that. I pray that your spirit would be faithful to the truth of your word that has been declared today, that you would work in the hearts of your people, Lord. Help them to know and firmly believe these rich truths, that they have a resurrected life. They've been united with Christ in his death, but also in his life, and can live victoriously because of your victory over sin and death. We praise you, Father, for these truths. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us, and we'll sing a closing song.